Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at two guys to the dark tower You can also email us at two guys at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part Three, Chapters One through Four. Let's start the show. This section, in this haze of green and gold, begins with Roland, Jake, and Oi arriving in Keystone Earth back at the scene of the gunfight Roland and Eddie had with the goons in 1977. Realizing that the time to save King is short, they quickly get a car and a driver, Irene Tassenbaum, and race off to find the writer before his rendezvous with Brian Smith. Ka draws all these characters together near a crossroads where King is saved, but someone dies. Later, Roland visits the Tet Corporation, whose corporate goal is to protect the Rose, and save the universe. Roland gets a few gifts before returning to Fedek and reuniting with Susanna. Jay, I didn't want to get into it in the book recap because we have a very emotional and stunning death in this section that was totally unexpected. And so if we could just have a moment of silence for Shimi. Uh, You got me. Yes. (laughs) Shimi's death affects us all, and it obviously was very important to King himself because it happened off screen where no one could see it. (laughs) Thanks a lot, King. Thank you for introducing us back to Shimi three books after his introduction and then killing him off screen due to a foot infection. Yeah. (laughs) But seriously, Jay, for the third time, Jake has been killed in this series. Is it the third time or the second? This is his third death. That's right. He died in book one, and then he died again in book one. Yep. And then he came back, and now he's died again. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll hold this time. Third time's a charm. Yeah. He's like a zombie. Uh, You can't keep him down. This time time feels uh, different because everybody (laughs) made such a fuss about it. (laughs) The first time Jake died, Roland's like, I got a mission. Now, he's like, he's my son. I would give up everything. I would give up the tower. But He's my son. But since I can't, I won't, and I'll continue on to the tower and just have a moment with him. Yeah. And hop into the arms of a woman a day later. Mm-hmm. But we'll get up, we'll get to all that here in a, in a second in this episode. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about with Jake's death, but this section builds up. So we start off with them landing back in Maine in 1999, and there's this race to get to King and try to save him. And it all comes to a head fairly quickly. We have this intersecting Brian Smith and his dogs in a van heading towards King. We've got... Roland and Jake and Irene Tassenbaum racing in, a, in another truck towards King to save him, and King walking along the side of the road. And in what seems very odd to me, because King is very descriptive in how he lays out this whole passage. He's very, here's this road, and it's going this direction, and here's where you can see the 
blind sight lines and here's a wall and he's very descriptive with how it all is. And then when things actually happen, it just sort of doesn't make sense to me how Roland and Jake are jumping out of the car. Why are they jumping out of the, the truck to save King? What, what What's going on, Jake? Because it really sort of threw me off the actual logistics of how this all goes down. Yeah, this just screams of bad tactics and tactics that I don't think Roland would have made the mistake with. I, he doesn't know how to drive a cartomobile or a, or a truckomobile, but he understands that it's a vehicle that has mass and weight. And what does he do as they're approaching King on the side of the road with the van coming at King from the other direction? Not put the pickup truck between King and the, the van. He says, um... Stop the van here. So we box King in even further. So there's another obstacle. There's another hard object for him to be smushed into. We've got a wall on each side of the road and now a truck blocking it. You know, let's make the situation worse and then we'll use our human bodies to try to stop this this tragedy from happening. Makes no sense. And this is all in service of King trying to make the events in his fictional story closely aligned with the events of reality. Yes. He was, in fact, hit by this van. He was, in fact, hit at this point in the road. And probably the shape of the road, the hill, the blind turn, the wall on the side where it didn't give him any space to jump out of the way, all that factored in. And there wasn't, of course, Roland in a truck and Jake pushing him out of the way. But I think King might have been able to find a way to make this feel more true to the characters and more true to what they're capable of. Couldn't Roland have leaned out one window and used his superhuman marksmanship and super powerful gun to maybe shoot out all of the tires of the van <laughs> before it got to King? I mean, he could have at least three of them, right? Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, Jay. I think what King is trying to do is to match up what happened in reality to Stephen King, the writer, to what happens to Stephen King, the character in this book. Because in Bev Vincent's The Road to the Dark Tower, there's a sidebar about the accident, which I think King has really detailed very nicely in his on-writing book, what exactly happened and the mm. after effects of all of it. And King has said that at the last moment, and he's not aware of this because he thinks he blacked out, which makes sense. Yeah. But but I think he was told by the police that he must have tried to jump out of the way because the van didn't hit him straight on. It sort of hit him on the side as opposed to straight on. And so that matches up with Jake possibly pushing him to the side of the way. And so, like you said, I think he's trying to match up reality with this fictional world. Um, in such a way that maybe makes sense, but you're right that in doing so, it sort of takes away the agency of the characters that we expect out of Roland and what what to do. And then, just from a timing perspective, Roland tries to jump out. He can't. Somehow, Jake jumps out and over Roland and gets to King and is able to, even though he's you know 12 years old, push King out of the way enough to partially save mm -hmm. him. And then the worst part of all of this is because of what has happened. Roland is not able to be with Jake when Jake dies. Right. Roland has to be with King, who he has said for chapters now how much he hates because he's lazy and he feels he's ruining everything. 
And he obviously doesn't like Brian Smith either. And he has to be with these two men that he despises while his son is dying with a stranger uh, just a few feet away. Yeah. And you mentioned that Roland was angry with King and has been angry and frustrated with King. There's a moment when Roland says, I kind of joked about this earlier, like, I would sacrifice everything. I would give it all up, including the tower, if I could have Jake not die. And it seems strange that, I don't know, when Roland was making this plan, they all agreed, we have to save King. And it's probably going to come at the cost of one of our lives. And yet he goes through with it. Like, he had the power to just say, you know what, we're not going to go save him. Yep. And then he will. He would have effectively done what he wished he could do. He would have cried off from his quest, he would have given up the tower, and he would still have Jake. And King, I guess, would have died. Does that, does that bring about the end of all things? Does that mean the tower falls and, and the, there's no reason to go on anyway? I don't know. It seems like they saved the beam. So yeah. maybe the tower is fine now. Mission accomplished. Let's let's grab Jake and Susanna and go home. Right? So do you think like do you think Roland should have let King die? Yeah, it seems like he has the power here, as you're saying. If he truly believes what he believes, he could walk the walk and talk the talk by saving Jake and making it not happen. But everything that we've been led to believe for the six and a half books leading up to this moment does not make me think that Roland would give up his goal of the tower. And that he might be saying that in his mind, but he knows ultimately he will not not do that. And so he is, even in that moment when when Jake is dying, he is still, even if it's subconsciously, doing what he needs to do to get to the tower. Yeah. I think that's ultimately the answer that despite Roland's feelings, <laughs> he's not going to give up. He's not going to quit the tower. So he knew this was the price. So he went into this thinking he was going to sacrifice himself. And that's another way for him to give up his quest. Yep. You know, to, to die means the quest ends. To die means the tower is on its own. Maybe his, uh, his companions who remain might carry on his mission to reach the tower, but he has no way to guarantee that if he's no longer alive. So he was ready to do that. He was willing to jump through the door, save King, and kill himself in the process. That's fine. He wasn't willing to lose Jake. But he brought Jake anyway. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like, hmm, one of us is going to die. I think it'll be me. And if it's not yeah. me, I don't know who it'll be, but it won't be me. Yeah. Maybe it'll be some character we just met 10 pages ago and it, no one will really care. Yeah. Or it'll be Jake, a character who we as readers have known since, you know, potentially 20 years. Like, I, I think, uh, yeah, King says this in at the end of the chapter, right? Or the end of the section. Yes. Like, like I, I can't believe, you know, that I just killed Jake, a character who has existed in these books for more than 20 years, which is, you know, longer than the character has been alive. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think when they were about to do the assault on on the Breaker's town, mm-hmm. and they had this feeling of Kashum, and they, you know, Roland realized one of them was, you know, 
there's this feeling of death. He never considered that it was going to be himself. So I think even yeah. when he thinks there's a possibility I'm going to die, I don't know if Roland actually thinks he's going to die. Like I think Roland has this sense of inevitability about himself. I don't think Roland, and this might go back to what we've been talking about since episode one of this show, that Roland does not have the imagination to imagine his own death. Hmm. That it, it's sort of beyond his comprehension. And so even when he thinks, I'm going to sacrifice myself, I'm not sure if he really believes that. And so I, I don't think he has any thoughts other than I'm going to survive and I'm going to continue on to the tower no matter what. Even if that means my son is going to die, even though I said, oh, I would give anything to keep my son alive. I don't think he really means that. Yeah. And I, I feel like this exposes a slight weakness in King's construction of these death scenes. I feel like he realized we're getting close to the end of the story. I need to really add some, some weight and and importance to these moments. So I'm going to start killing off the main characters. Mm. Like I'm talking, I, I guess I'm talking about authorial intent here. Like, like the, the, the author just says, I'm going to start killing off characters. How do I make this happen? I'm going to first introduce this Kashum concept. I'm going to make everybody upset about it and then say, we're going to, we're going to do this big raid. It's going to be super dangerous. We're probably all going to die. And then they do the raid. It's super dangerous. Nobody dies. <laughs> they have a chance to actually come and give each other a big hug and say, we did it. Yay, go team. And then like this random pot shot happens and Eddie's a goner. Yeah. Right. That felt so inorganic, artificial. It, it felt like it was just tacked onto the story. Like King was just writing and writing and writing. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. I was supposed to kill one of these guys. <laughs> shit, I don't want to go back and change stuff, so I'm just going to add this, right? And then we get to Jake, and it's like, hmm, one of us is going to die. We're going to have to go save King, but it's going to, it's going to cost us. It's not going to be Roland, right? It, he, uh, yeah. you know, like, like from the author's perspective here, I'm not ready to kill Roland, so that means I got to kill Jake. So I'm going to just write this thing where Jake jumps over Roland and puts himself in the in the way of a van and it just like it felt unnecessary it felt just forced can i admit something here sure i was shocked by this death so here's a little if you've made it through 50 episodes you know that this is my first time reading the series and the conceit of this show is that i don't really know what's happening and that for 99% of this is true. I've known for a while that Eddie was going to die. And when it happened, I was still sort of shocked because like you said, it didn't seem very organic. But at some mm -hmm. point, I knew that Eddie was going to die in these books. I had no idea that Jake was going to die. Like none yeah. at all. And it really shocked me, even when Roll in the character says, one of us is going to die saving King and there has to be a sacrifice. It never crossed my mind that either Roland or Jake was going to die. Like, I just, I didn't see it happening. Like, I just couldn't comprehend that King would kill off Jake for a third time. Like, it's just, it, it boggled my mind when it happened. So, 
I was very stunned by this and it did surprise me. And yet it somehow made sense after it happened. Like, okay, he did say somebody was going to have to sacrifice and I guess it, I knew it shouldn't be Roland. So I guess it's going to have to be Jake. So I just sort of am not used to having a, a kid die, even though I know multiple times multiple times and this kid has died multiple times and king has not been afraid to kill kids before whether that be in cujo or pet cemetery or salem's lot kids die spoilers oh yes (laughs) (laughs) it's up to you to decide which kids die though you don't know i haven't named names (laughs) although king says in this book doesn't he doesn't doesn't uh brian smith the man who hit king say like i liked cujo but he means the movie and he's like, you should have let the kid die. And King's like, I did in the book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about Brian Smith here, Jay. Yeah. The man who is responsible for hitting King both in real life and in the book. Yeah. I don't know how much the fictional Brian Smith aligns with the, Brian Smith of reality. I don't even know if that's his real name. This sounds like a fake name, but you never know. Um, But clearly somebody was driving the van who in reality actually hit the real Stephen King. Setting that aside, King paints us a pretty vivid picture of who Brian Smith is. And one of the things that he does is establishes that Brian Smith is, to me, in my reading of this, he's not just somebody who likes to be drunk and high all the time and he's just kind of loafs around and stumbles through life king went a step further and he made him sort of simple-minded and king also states that brian smith could have been shimi's twin so maybe this was nothing more than an innocent attempt on king's part to find another link another parallel another mirror image between one world and another but what i really take issue with is the fact that king made him simple-minded mm. um i mean was king trying to make it easier for us the reader to forgive smith for hitting king with his van because he was simple and if that's the case i think that's kind of fucked up like like let that let that character be responsible He was a bad driver. He was distracted. He was intoxicated. Whatever. Don't make him also, you know, like, just simple. I think, I don't like that. And I don't think it needed to be the case. And I think King could have easily avoided that. Make Brian Smith an asshole. Make me hate him. Give me any type of motivation to just be angry with him for hitting King on the side of the road. But don't try to soften it by making me maybe pity him. Mm. Yeah. And I don't even know, you know, I agree. He, he has done this and he makes it that way, but even putting us in his head for as much as he does seems unnecessary. And I don't know what King's trying to get at there. Like why we're spending so much time in the head of this character who just comes in for this section and is gone by the end of the section. And I know he is important in what happens. And if, this is King working out his own demons and trying to explain this out. Um, but it would be very easy to have this just be a van hurling towards King and not have any character in it and just be sort of a faceless 
person that yeah. that does it, but yet we spend a lot of time with it. We we're in his head, we're in his thoughts, we're we're seeing everything that happened in the you know twenty minutes leading up to this accident from his perspective, and to some extent, I mean, he has this concept of ka of fate in this world in the series of books that exist that sort of takes away the free will to some extent, like there's fate and it's, is this going to happen no matter what? In which case we don't need to have Brian Smith. We could just have the van happening. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, th- there's a lot here that it is odd within the context of this chapter. I, I hate even just keep saying this over and over again. This isn't the first simple minded character that King has created. No. I mean, there's Shimi. That's the most uh, apparent one here to our conversation, but you know, like, there's Duddits, there's John Coffey. There are these characters who are special in in other ways, but King has established them as not of like normal IQ or not of normal uh, social connections. But they usually are important parts of a story in a way that that becomes almost irrelevant. They're important characters of their of their own. And they stand up on their own as characters. So this Brian Smith guy, like you said, we didn't even need to meet him. He could have just been a guy who falls out of the open door of the van with a whole bunch of empty beer cans going, what the hell? And Roland punches him in the face and hypnotizes him. And that's that. Yep. You know, I, that would have been cleaner. And... We didn't need to hear about the Mars's bars and stuff. Right. And the direct ca- connection to Shimi, I mean, it's almost not a, you know, there is so much twinning in these books. We've talked about mm-hmm. it before. And even in this section, when Roland and Jake entered the general store, which they were in 22 years earlier or, you know, a few weeks earlier, depending on your time frame, right. King makes a point of saying like, Hey, it's the general store owner's son who's now the butcher here. And in the aisles of the general store is the daughter of one of the ladies who was shot there originally. So, like, it's Mm -hmm. mirroring the sequence that happened earlier. But the characters tend to be very similar to the characters that they were mirroring before. And to your point, this is not the same, right? Brian Smith is not a similar version of Shimi. He's a darker terrible version of shimi if you're going to go that far right like it's not sort of a connection that you would want to make i would i would think that the the version of shimi in this earth would be just as kind and and big-hearted as the shimi that we got to meet in mages yep yep all right well let's move on from this unpleasant topic to talk more about jake's death so we we talked about my reaction to Jake's death, but there are other characters. We talked about how King apologizes for Jake's death in a in a metafictional way. But what about Oi's reaction? As as a, someone who's just a huge fan of Oi Jay, that must have broken your heart. Yeah, it did. <laughs> just like every other tragic moment in all of, in all of the Dark Tower stories, usually it doesn't get to me emotionally until I've till King takes it through the lens of one of the other characters. Mm. You know, when Roland is shattered by some happen, you know, by something that has happened in the story, I get this long description of all of his emotional uh, issues and, and his struggles. And I 
generally just you know, like I sympathize, but uh, I don't I don't get emotional myself. But when you know Susanna says something to him and and she cries because of what happened to Roland, that's when I break down. And so here, when Jake died, I was like, "All right, Jake just got run over. His whole body was crushed, and then he died." Oh, that sucks. You know, like like I was sad, but I wasn't like you know, it didn't get dusty in the room for me. <laughs> but but when Oi did his howl, I was like, oh, I'm getting a little choked up right now. It's like it's, Oi is the closest has the closest bond to Jake, and because Oi is not a human being, it's an it's a unique bond, and there is something that, and we've also been inside Oi's head. We get to go inside his his head again in this section of the book, we know what Oi's thinking. We know how he thinks, and we know how he perceives the world. And it was kind of shockingly emotional, just how, and, and, and powerful, like Oi's reaction. Like it, you know, on one hand, it, it's like, of course he's going to react this way. You yep. know, like it's almost a cliche. The, the dog's owner dies and the dog is sad, you know. And, but, and, and is a companion at the graveside for years to come. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's that famous episode of Futurama where the, <laughs> the dog waits for Fry and everybody who sees that episode just cries. It's just like a, a weep-inducing episode. Except for you, probably. You probably laugh at that episode. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> your heart is dead. But... uh yeah, and and while we were in Oi's point of view, we get Oi's, I guess, his philosophy on life, which is kind of interesting. That, like, uh, at this up to now, I I understood that Oi had like a rudimentary vocabulary, and and that he understood who people were, and he could maybe think in terms of like planning ahead a little bit, and 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 certainly understand the his environment, but. He's, he thinks that death itself doesn't matter. What matters is what happens during your life. I think that's pretty profound for... A Billy Bumbler? <laughs> for a Billy Bumbler. That's pretty profound for a Billy Bumbler. And, um, I mean, it's not a new idea, but I think it's pretty great that it comes from Oi. And uh, it's another reason why Oi's the best. So we also get Susanna's reaction a little bit after the fact. So she has a feeling that one of them hasn't made it, um, but she doesn't know until she gets to Fedek, where she is set up a rendezvous with Roland and Jake. Whoever and, oh, comes oh, back. Whoever comes back. And it's not until she gets there and somebody jumps through the door that she realizes that it's Roland. And coming so soon off the death of her husband, she is just about devastated. And considers for a minute throwing it all away and just, you know, blaming Roland for all of this because he's drawn them into this un somewhat unwillingly. And she decides not to. And she embraces Roland and goes to kiss him. And he goes to kiss her. And she makes sure to kiss him on the lips as a way of telling him that she is all in. And with him on the way to the tower, which is what Eddie suspected would happen, that Susanna would buy into this. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's a little bit surprising, I think, to me as well, um, but probably true to the character. I mean, we talked about this last week, I think, or last episode, that Susanna had always seemed to be the one with the least reason to continue on to the tower, but she makes it very clear that she's going to see this through. What struck me as kind of strange during this scene is that while we're in uh, Susanna's perspective and, and we have access to what to exactly what she's thinking, she makes a couple of 90 degree turns back and forth in just a few moments. First, she's, she's thinking, I'm done. I, I cannot continue. And then for no apparent reason, switches right back to, I'm in this 100%. Not maybe, not, I'll see how it goes for a little while longer. I'm all in. And I don't know what made her change her mind because apparently nothing did. And so, you know, makes you wonder, like, did she change her mind or is she just trying to convince herself that this is the, this is the course to take as opposed to some other option. And maybe she isn't really in hundred percent, but that's why she didn't say words because that would maybe come across as dishonest. Instead, she just expressed her intent with this kiss. Yep. And you know, maybe it's easier to lie with a kiss than <laughs> than, than with your words. Um, another another moment when I got a little teary eyed was when Oi ran and leapt into Susanna's arms. Yeah. And I know that they've all been kind of a close knit family, and they've all had various degrees of. Uh, connection to Oi and Jake aside, I always kind of felt like Roland was the human that Oi was closest to. Mm. Um, but I think they had kind of a utilitarian relationship. Like <laughs> Oi, Oi understood that Roland was the boss, and he would listen to Roland if he gave him a direct order. But aside from that, he's just, you know, like okay, you're all right. I trust you. What have you? But. But I never felt like there was a really close connection with Susanna or Eddie with Oi. They they were just kind of he was the family pet, but you know, right? It, it was Jake. It was Jake, and then like you know a little bit with the rest. But Oi's sheer joy of seeing Susanna and to share his grief with her, yeah, was a really emotional moment, and it just made Oi that much more dimensional you know like it just it, yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is a tough episode for jay who knew yeah who knew well of course we can't leave out reactions to jake's death without getting to roland um and maybe it's a little maudlin the burial the the all all of it um the eulogy the prayer that he says over the grave um you know the loss of a son it's much different roland's reaction than the first time jake died when he basically went to sleep and that was it he's moved he moves on almost immediately to his meeting with the man in black and that's mm-hmm. it i mean it's obviously impacting him much deeper in fact the first night after that, when he and Irene are traveling to New York City, he says something along the lines of, he doesn't want to go, he gets in bed with her. Um, they had agreed that one of them would sleep in the 
they were in separate rooms even, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets in bed with her and he says, I don't want to sleep because I'm afraid all the people who are dead are going to come to me in my dream and kill me. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, Uh, maybe this guy's not the soulless uh, gunslinger that we thought he was from the beginning. Like this is having an impact on him. Yeah. I, I mean, there are people that he cares about deeply and then there's everybody else. And I think, you know, Jake and Eddie are two of those rarefied few who he truly cares about, who he truly loved, who he truly felt were a part of him and a part of his life. And I really liked how King expressed that, that Irene was shocked and frightened by Roland's honesty. It was, it was not what he said. It was the honesty with which he expressed it that took her breath away. Yeah. And, and, and it made her, I don't know if it made her afraid of him, but it just made her scared of the, the circumstances or made her maybe realize the gravity of the situation. That this wasn't a man who just lost a friend. This was somebody whose life is like in shambles and, you know, and he's, and he's haunted by these deaths <laughs> and they're, and they're still so fresh. One just happened hours ago and the other one happened like yesterday. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know if, if many people could get through that still standing, <laughs> let alone, uh, you know, what Roland's doing. But, yeah, it's a tough moment. Well, this is probably a good transition. We don't want to spend our entire podcast talking about the death of Jake when there's other things that happen in this section. So maybe we should talk a little bit about Irene Tassenbaum a little bit more as we transition here. She is a brand new character. Again, King's introducing lots of new characters in this book that we haven't seen before. And she immediately makes an impact. Like she's, Roland realizes that Ka has been sending them what they need when they need it. Um, And that's been true since book two, right? When he's on the beach and he gets the people, he draws the people who he needs to get him through his illness and to, to help him with his quest. And it happened with John Cullum. When they go through, they find the right person at the right time. And in the exact same place that they found John Cullum, Roland finds Irene Tassenbaum, who is initially just going to be their driver, uh, but immediately becomes something more. He has a chance to ditch her at some point and grab another guy who might know where King is better than Irene. But he's like, nope, Ka gave us Irene. We're going to stick with her and and see what happens. And she turns out to be a really interesting character for the 100 pages that she's in this book. Yeah, she's fantastic. And one of the the fun things about her is when we're essentially introduced to her in the third person by Chip McAvoy, the the owner of the the deli or whatever it is, the the shop. And he thinks of her as rich as Croesus, Gabby as a parrot loaded on whiskey, and as crazy as Howard Hughes on a morphine toot. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, to Chip She's just your typical summer visitor. Like, yep. <laughs> really? I mean, are all the people that are up from Boston and New York, like, rich as Croesus? I mean, they're probably wealthy, but Irene Tassenbaum and her husband seem like they really are. Like, yeah. He invented like the internet, kind of, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, these, these are like the super rich kind of people where they have multiple apartments, you know, just the... And just, oh, we keep this car here and that car there and we have a boat and whatever. It's like, 
uh, sky's the limit. But um, yeah, I really like that. I, I like her introduction. And um, one thing I didn't like about Chip's view of her was the casual, low-key anti-Semitism that <laughs> True. King felt he needed to throw in here and how Chip thinks of her as a daughter of Abraham. And besides the fact that that's like annoying and stupid and ignorant, just like all racism is, um, she herself is not actually Jewish. Right. It's her husband's last name. So her husband has a Jewish last name. She's actually uh, an Italian American from Staten Island. Her la- <laughs> her maiden name's Cantora. I mean, Chip McAvoy doesn't need to know this, or maybe he has no way of knowing this, or maybe he's just never been curious enough to ask. But it's like, oh, the Tessenbaum ladies here, you know, like, hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing f- about me with Irene, and you st- started to hint at it, is. She realizes she's on an adventure, and she knows it's not going to last long, and it's just going to be this sort of sidetrack in her life. But it's going to she's going to make the most of it. So she makes sure that you know, even though she's basically being kidnapped by a man and his boy (laughs) and this strange raccoon type creature at gunpoint, like she's like, "All right, I'll drive you." Sure, like I can drive, and I'll figure out this stick shift, even though I've haven't driven a stick shift in thirty years. And I'll get you where you need to go. And then even after the fact and the boy dies and I could get away, I'm going to come back and pick you up, Roland, and take you where you need to go. Even that, even if that's a two-day drive to New York City to see some rich people that you think are there in Manhattan, sure, I'll help you out with that. And I'll mm-hmm. leave my husband and I won't tell him a word. And oh, by the way, your honesty and your rugged good looks are enough to make me very attracted to you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a little weird how much King has taken this and turned it into a bodice ripper of of, of a book at this point. You know, we talked a lot in our early days on this podcast about how King sort of was playing around with different tropes, whether they be Western or science fiction or fantasy or horror. And I mean, we get this almost romantic tale of a, you know, a tall, dark stranger coming into town and sweeping this woman off her feet from her boring everyday life. And they go on a road trip to New York City. I mean, you could see the pieces of a of a romance novel here. Yeah, but there are also still a lot of parallels to the the Western trope of oh, yeah. the, the stranger coming into town and doing everything you just said. I mean, that's basically what Roland does with Allie at Sheb's bar, except that he doesn't take her with him. He doesn't ask her to help him in any meaningful way, except to just catch him up on recent history in the town and make him hamburgers. Yeah. Um, I guess the difference is, is that this is from Irene's point of view. And that's where it seems a little weird to me. And to our further discussion about King seeing a parallel of himself in Roland, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's almost like a fantasy for King in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, like I could just walk into some random shop in Maine and like all the ladies are going to be a flutter. Yeah. Okay, King. <laughs> Calm down there, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So at one point, 
at one point, at one of the moments of lower action, when Irene and Roland have a chance to actually have a conversation, they sort of get into a debate about whether or not the Dark Tower is more important to Roland than the continued existence of the universe. And Roland says the tower is existence itself. Mm. I found this to be an interesting debate. You know, like if the tower is everything, then the making the tower more important than anything else isn't really. So is this just talking past each other and really saying the same thing? Or is there really something going on here that is something that is worthy of debate and does roland know that i mean i mean this is roland changing what the tower is to be whatever he needs it to be whenever he's having yeah. the discussion at the time it seems and he gets into this conversation again with at at the tech corporation when he's mm-hmm. talking there as well and they're all happy because hey you saved the beams and we've got our own set of psychic folks who are working like the breakers to help us understand what's happening and congratulations you saved the beam and then they realize oh you don't care about that you only care about the tower don't you and so it's the same sort of thing where they do seem to be talking past each other and roland i don't know if it's roland justifying his quest to the tower to everyone he talks to or what but yeah it is an odd debate yeah but they move on and have sexy time so then it doesn't really matter yeah. And since I can't seem to drop Oi from the conversation for <laughs> any length of time, I really like the fact that Oi introduces himself, so to speak, to Irene by working blue himself. <laughs> He's yelling, fuck, 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 left and right. And she hears it. You know, she's like, did, did that dog just say <laughs> yeah, fuck to me? Yep. You know? And uh, so, just so many reasons to love Oi. Oh. So I mentioned a few minutes ago, Jade, the Tech Corporation, and that, you know, considering how big this section that we read was, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of time with the Tech Corporation, and you and I aren't going to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, are we? (laughs) And why is that, Jay? Because it seems like a bunch of blather. Like, I, I, I mean, there's so much stuff being thrown on the page here, and it's just dumping of exposition and i don't know how much if any of this adds to the story i don't think it does we largely already know everything the tech corporation knows it seems like an exposition dump for roland's sake and yeah i guess knowing a few of these things might be useful to him but did we need to spend all this time i don't think we did and then they give him like the biggest info dump imaginable a hard copy <laughs> of insomnia and they say read this learn it it's gonna help and he discards it before going back through the door you know he just gives it to irene like yeah maybe you you'll like this i i hear this stephen king guy he, he can write he can turn a phrase or two you know like it's it's so weird i i mean i love the idea of the tech corporation yeah and i would watch a tv series i would read a book about the adventures of john cullum and Susanna's uncle or godfather whatever he is and aaron depenow i would read the heck out of that book as their adventures as they fight against the sombra corporation i think that that could be really fun and interesting mm-hmm. but the 40 pages that we get of it here 
of them sitting in a corporate boardroom and talking about all this stuff in very vague terms is not my cup of tea whatsoever. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. Like you see that they're gunslingers in their own way. One of the, one of the women's able to sneak up on Roland and he's mm-hmm. shocked like, Oh my God, like somebody snuck up behind me and tapped me on my shoulder. And it's not because she's just wearing these funny shoes, but because she has the air of a gunslinger around her. Yes. And, um, you know, they're able to protect the road. I mean, that stuff's sort of interesting, but again, it seems like it's just so, and maybe it's just because it's coming after this big action sequence and Jake's death, but it's just so much blather. And I also wondered as they spend so much time about talking about how important insomnia is. And that's one of the Stephen King books I haven't read. And maybe we'll get to in, in a future episode after we finish the series. But remember in the last book, Jay, when King had his writer's notebook and he mm-hmm. talked about how concerned he was about the sales of some of his books and how he was really upset that Lisey's story or Rose Matter didn't sell as yeah, much as Rose he wanted. Matter, it was yeah. Rose Matter. It didn't sell as much as he wanted. I wondered if he just dropped Insomnia here and had a character say, you know, if you really want to understand the Dark Tower books, this is the one you should <laughs> buy. It's sort of like a product placement for King. Like, hey, if you really want to know what I, what, what I think, read this book in addition. Only twelve ninety five in paperback now. Or like a Troy McClure skit. Yeah. Like, Hi, I'm Stephen King. You might remember me from some other books such as Insomnia and Rose Matter. <laughs> now let's get back to our regularly scheduled program, The Dark Tower. Yeah. Well, it, it tells you exactly what Roland at least thinks of it, because as you said, he dumps the book and just sort of, eh. All he really needs to know, in his opinion, is what Eddie told Jake, told Oi, who then mind-melded with Roland, which is... Watch out for Dandelo. Yeah. Right. And that's that seems to be the important thing right now. And the Tet Corporation mentions a person whose name I can't even remember right now, but they said, this person, we don't know who he is or what his deal is, but he's going to be important to you. So we'll see how all that plays out. I just know that we're in the last 300 pages of this book, and it seems like there's a lot of plot left. Yeah. But like, we've conveniently completely ignored mordred for how many pages <laughs> yeah like he he was introduced at the beginning of the book and we're sort of like why why is he here he's not it doesn't feel like he has any meaning or or reason to exist he's just a newly invented bad guy and then he's just like not in the story for yeah. like half the book again <laughs> right uh... All right. Well, Jade, this has been a long section. It's been very emotional. It's been very sad in places, very confusing in places. We just need to get to some fun stuff. Yes. Fun stuff always cheers me up. (laughs) So I think we both noticed that chapter one and chapter three of this section both had 19 subsections. And then Mm. furthermore, chapters two and four had 15 and four subsections each, which adds up to another 19. So three 19s in this section. Yeah, very crafty, King. I see what you're doing there. Yeah. To add on to the 19, he also talks about some of the music that Brian Smith's listening to in his van. Um, And the first song he listens to is Hey 19 by Steely Dan, which not really a jamming song that you can like rock out to, which is sort of what I was expecting Brian Smith to be listening to. But hey, some uh, jazz fusion 
soft yacht rock from the 70s will work, I guess. He also mentioned another song called Gangsta Dream 19 by Outrageous, which, as far as I can tell, is not real. Just a fake made-up song to get another 19. <laughs> I guess King can't think of any other 19 song, so uh, he had to make something up there. He couldn't have bent the truth a little bit and said it was a Depeche Mode song? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> so, um, as I hinted at a little bit earlier, uh, King does some pretty serious self-deprecation by way of uh, Tassenbaum's critique when she and Roland are kind of talking about Stephen King as a writer. She says, he's not very good, and then says he's readable, and then goes on to say, he has a tin ear for language. <laughs> Like, all right, King, first you make your, your doppelganger into the sexy, fun time, irresistible guy. And then you're like, but I suck at writing. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go along with this. She, she also makes fun of the fact that the book's the size of a, like a backstop, right? Like she just like, it's so yeah. big. <laughs> yeah. He hits on all the points that the critics made. Mm. You're usually the one who points out the, uh poetic type lines but i liked the line no matter how the tale falls when the pages grow thin and this is something that king says to roland that when he promises that he'll continue to write the dark tower and i just like this concept you and i have talked about this offline jay about how holding a book you can tell as the book gets smaller and smaller in your right hand as you're flipping the pages that you are nearing the end it's one of the only mediums where you can actually feel tactily something coming to an end like, that you don't get in movies or music or elsewhere. And I just like that idea of the pages growing thin and things coming to an end. Yeah. It's a fantastic way to express that idea. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that the so-called rational world, Ka, wants King dead, and the Ka of the Prim wants King to be alive and mm. continuing to sing his song. So... I bring this up in the fun stuff section because it's Ka against Ka, a Titan <laughs> against a Titan. <laughs> Who will win? Uh, always clash of the Titans with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and one more Oi comment here. How come when we are in Oi's inner dialogue, he still says names wrong, but not any of the other words? <laughs> yeah. Like, I've always thought that Oi's speech was like a speech impediment or his vocal cords were not able to say Roland or Jake. It's not that he actually thought their names were Oland and Ake. Yeah, he was trying to say them. Yeah, but then we're in his head and he's like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about all this stuff. And then the gunslinger guy, Oland, and I'm like, wait a minute, why isn't it just Roland? Wouldn't you think the R's? Like, it just, it totally threw me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I felt the exact same way, and and it made me ponder, like, what would it be like if King wrote all of Oi's inner thoughts with the first consonant missing? Like, how bonkers would that be to read? You know, it's like, Olin is A, pop it, you know, like, like, we would just go crazy. So, I'm sure there's some practical stuff to that, but it's either one or the other, right? He, either his anatomy doesn't allow him to say certain sounds because he has a, he doesn't have a human mouth and tongue and vocal cords, so it sounds different. So he says Oland and Ake and Oi, 
or he doesn't know what the real word is. Yeah. I don't know. Because no one else ever says Oland. <laughs> he, and it's actually Olin. He like cuts off the D too in his in his own mind. Oh, yeah. He started down the stairs with the man Olin falling behind. And he says, Ake had saved him from death, which did not matter. Ake had saved him from loneliness and shame after Oi had been cast out by the Ted of his kind. It's <laughs> just weird. <laughs> Olin and... Uh, all right. One final one about Oi. So I think we knew that Oi was inspired by King's dogs. Um, so we get a moment with the with King, the character, spending some time in his office where he writes, and his corgi, who we meet, uh, is named Marlo, comes in, and uh, she's a Welsh corgi, and it's really obvious that this is not only the type of dog, but the specific dog that had to have inspired Oi. Mm. Because Oi has the stature of a Welsh corgi. Oi has the short curly tail. Oi has the 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 low to the ground, you know, body, uh, yeah, body, and the long snout. And I and I know that King loves have loves Welsh corgis. He's had many over the years, but this is the one who was the old man in his house when he was writing this book. So so Marlowe must have been around for a lot of the invention of oi yeah and uh so it was cool to just get that little taste of of reality to like to meet meet the dog behind the bumbler if you will yes <laughs> so my final fun stuff is when irene and roland are in the motel she turns on the tv and watches the news until they get word that stephen king is okay they say that he had been hit by a van but that that he'll survive and then she starts flipping through the channels and she comes across Westworld, which is the original movie with Yul Brenner as a tall, dark gunslinger uh, going around discriminately uh, killing people. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. the, the interesting thing about that, Jay, that I thought was not just the, you know, another media parallel uh, p- potential inspiration for Roland. And, you know, obviously we've seen that throughout the series. But when they're talking about it being on, Roland can't actually watch the TV. Like he doesn't actually see the screen. Like they, King says, like he could see lines of light, but he can't see the picture. Did you hmm. recall that? And I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know if it's that's because his eyesight is so good, or if it's just because he's not used to a television screen or what. But he, there, there seems to be something there that he can't actually see the picture. Like there's some sort of physical issue there. I chalked it up to partial lack of familiarity with the technology. Like he doesn't understand what he's looking at. And also the maybe some sort of interference because he's from another version of Earth. Like like the same thing with the words. Like he he has he really struggles to read what like written language yep. in in anywhere but his own world. So the TV screen is just gonna come across as like indecipherable in some way yes yeah in in a similar way but there's also the idea that if i think if you found somebody who had grown up in the wilderness like raised by wolves or something like that and they've never seen anything that even hints at this possibility of a a glowing image of moving pictures with sound the first time that they see it i don't know that they would necessarily recognize that they're seeing a representation of something else Mm -hmm. in the world 
I, I think that there's like a cognitive disconnect there that we need to, I think you, I think as a human being with the way our brains work, you need to be introduced to that over time and you need to be acclimated to it. And Roland has never had that opportunity. Yeah. He, I guess he's walked past these things before. He's been in New York before. Um, I'm sure he's encountered other types of really super advanced technology and all the other travels he's had, but this particular TV at this particular time, this is the first time he's actually paid attention and yeah. been aware that there's something to see there and he can't. Yeah. I also didn't know if it was because his eyesight is so good. I mean, the way a television works, especially, you know, before high definition, it was, you know, basically a tube writing lines of light over and over again. Right. And yeah. we've been told how great his eyesight is, that he's actually seeing those lines of being written and his mm -hmm. eyes have are too good to process because really what TV is, is a trick on our eyes. Like yep. we see motion, but it's not really there. It's just still pictures over and over again. And he's not seeing that because of the way his eyes work and the way the television works. So yeah, I think it's yeah. a combination of all those things, but it was just sort of a neat little aside that shows how much... King has thought about these characters and what it means to be in these worlds in some cases. Right. All right. Well, usually fun stuff is the end of our show, but we've got a few things we want to touch on here, Jay. One is just a fantastic email that we received from Amanda, who is a listener in Argentina. And she wrote us a long email about her experiences with Stephen King and her experiences with the Dark Tower. And, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of, Jay, and I think you are too, as we reached our 50th episode with this episode, is how we seem to have listeners all over the world. And I never yeah. expected- Yeah, we do. I never expected people outside of our friends and family in Ohio when we originally started this podcast to be listening to this, but to have someone like Amanda re reach out to us from Argentina and just tell us how much she enjoys the podcast, uh, we really appreciate it. So. Amanda, thank you very much. And Sean, I'd just like to add that one of the things I found most touching about Amanda's email was how she described how much she struggled to find friends and family members with whom she could truly discuss and share her enjoyment of the Dark Tower series. Mm. And that's something that I've experienced with many other media myself, whether it's a TV show or a favorite book series like this one. A lot of the people in my immediate life aren't as big a fan. They they don't want to spend hours talking about it. They don't want to, you know, break it down in the details and laugh about the fun stuff and complain about the crappy stuff. <laughs> Podcasts are an amazing way to connect to people who are as passionate about that topic as you are or as I am. And it makes me feel really happy that we can be those people for people like Amanda in that regard. Well, as long as we're patting ourselves on our back, Jay, we also got another five-star review of the podcast. This is from Sweden, talking about people across the world. Sandstream Pop wrote, a lovely podcast for everyone who enjoyed or will enjoy the Dark Tower cycle. It has been a long time since I stumbled upon such a great podcast as this one. The two hosts have wonderful chemistry. I guess he means you and me. Yeah. And they, and they both do their absolute best to pick through the richness that is all the details and inconsistencies in Stephen King's magnum opus. Well, thank you very much. Um, it, we, You have not seen through our act. 
Jay and I actually hate each other. Um, we have ever <laughs> since episode two, uh, but we've kept up the pretense for you, our loyal listener. So uh, I'm glad that our act of having good chemistry has held up for all these all this time. Yes. I even went so far as to move across the country so that I couldn't accidentally sit in the same room with Sean. Uh, but seriously, Sandstream Pop, thank you for the great review. Um, hopefully other folks in Sweden read your review and listen to us. Um, we love our Scandinavian countries. So thanks again for listening. And Jay, I guess another sort of call out, thank you to all of those who are listening to us who English is not your first language. Um, we really appreciate it because I'm sure we're talking fast and have a lot of slang and inside jokes that might not be the easiest to pick up. So uh, thank you for doing that. Um, know that a lot of our pronunciations might not be correct. English speakers tell us that all the time. So <laughs> don't abide by what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both for your for reaching out. And uh, it does mean a lot to us to hear from you. Yes. Finally, Jay, one of the things that people have been asking us is, as we're approaching the end of the core series of books, what comes next? Are we going to stop after the end of book seven, The Dark Tower? No, we are not stopping. No, nobody's going to make us shut down these microphones. <laughs> well, that's good to hear, Jay. Well, Jay, after having me read thousands of pages of The Dark Tower, what am I going to be reading next? thousands more pages of <laughs> oh. other Stephen King books. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. So seriously, uh, Jay and I have been talking about this and I think in the immediate term, there are some, while not necessarily core Dark Tower books, some really close to core Dark Tower books that we want to get into. Um, Little Sisters of Alluria is a short story with Roland as the lead character that we definitely want to tackle. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Hearts in Atlantis, which as you can tell from our discussion of this book, has Ted Brodigan in it and seems to inspire a lot of this book and has a lot of insights into what's happening with this book. So I think that those are going to be two of the immediate things that we tackle. Is that correct? Yeah. The way I see it is that once we are done with book seven of the Dark Tower, there are many Stephen King books that connect back to it. And I think, um, what we'll do is we'll figure out an, an order to just start reading books, maybe based on how closely they connect and how directly they connect, and then kind of work our way outward from there a bit. You know, like like you, you just mentioned, Hearts in Atlantis and Insomnia and Little Sisters of Aloria, these are very closely connected. I mean, the Little Sisters is a Roland story. So, for example, um, there's there's no question we would about us covering that. But we're kind of leave open how much further out we go and in what ways we make connections. Uh, is the stand on the horizon, perhaps? I know it's one of your favorite all-time books, so I'm sure you wouldn't mind uh, dissecting that. So we just wanted to kind of start sharing this general plan at a high level with you, our listeners, now before we get too much closer to the end of book seven, so you know that we are not planning on shutting down the show. We are planning to continue on and we're going to continue to pursue the Dark Tower by learning more and taking deep dives into other Stephen King books that connect back to the Tower. Yep. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. 
Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, just like Amanda did, and maybe you'll be read on a future episode. You can also reach us on our Twitter handle at twoguysdarktower. You can find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, like Sandstream Pop did, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite listening app. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 4, Chapters 1 through 3. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.